I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be kind of, uh, speaking of a bird's eye view, we're going to be getting a bird's eye view of First and Second Samuel and into First Kings a little bit about the beginning of the Israelite uh, monarchy, the kingdom that includes the first king Saul and the second king following him, uh, David. Now I want to give you a little bit of background here because <clears throat> you might think that it was normal and natural for Israel to have a king. In fact, we hear so much about the kings of Israel that we assume that was the way it was supposed to be. God would take them into a promised land and establish a, his own kingdom, and he would raise up kings to, uh, to serve uh, and uh, give guidance and direction according to his purposes. But God never intended for them to have an earthly king. God set up a system we call it the Israelite theocracy, uh, meaning God is in charge. God set up a system whereby he was the leader of the nation of Israel. And the way that it was designed was that although there were clans and tribes and and family groups and whatever, and when it was necessary to go to war for one reason or another, even in the conquest of Canaan with Joshua and with Caleb, God would raise up a military leader to take them into battle. He was not the king over the nation. And when the feat was accomplished... It reverted back to, uh, actually never left, the fact that God was leading his people. And part of God's intended blessing for the Israelites was that to a person, they would seek the Lord. They would have a relationship with, with him, that they would follow him, that they would obey the commandments that he had given through Moses and when they failed, that they would come and offer sacrifices, a repentance for their sin. And that they would seek the Lord and, and follow Him in all the matters of their life. And as a result, if they followed Him, they would not experience the diseases that came upon all the peoples around them. They would be spared uh, that kind of problem. They would have a bountiful harvest and crops. Uh, they would have uh, personal land ownership. Um, every family unit was given a certain amount of land as they entered the promised land, and they would uh, retain that land. In fact, in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, every 50 years, no matter what kind of situation you had gotten yourself into, and you might have mortgaged your property or even indentured yourself to someone else because uh, maybe through mismanagement or, dare I use the word misfortune, 
uh, you found yourself in a financial bind, in the 50th year, all your property came back to you. And uh, all of, and yourself, you were freed again. And the land enjoyed freedom and rest. God's intention was that the people would have the utmost freedom and the utmost blessing under His direct leadership. You know, we look at our nation today in the United States and we look at other countries and and the, the messes that we have made and the problems that we're in. But God had prescribed a system of government under His direct leadership that would be a great blessing to people. Um, regarding uh, foreigners and strangers, He said, welcome them. And uh, regarding the poor, He said, make sure that people have what they need because you're always going to have the poor. Jesus reminded us of that in the New Testament. And um, in every situation, God had a solution. They didn't have prisons. Um, If people had committed crimes that were not capital crimes, they had to make restitution. They were free to earn a little extra so they could pay back what they had uh, damaged or stolen or whatever. And if they had committed a capital crime, well, there was swift punishment. And you didn't have to worry about putting them in prison somewhere because they didn't last very long. And God had just designed uh, a whole nation that was to have the greatest blessing under His direct leadership. But he warned. He said, there will come a time when the people will not want me to be their king. They will reject me. And they will want to have a king established over them that will rule them. And he told Samuel, uh, in one of the passages I've listed for you, he told Samuel, he said, when the people ask for a king, you tell them what they're going to get. They're going to get somebody that's going to take their money, take their property, uh, bring them into slavery, um, compel their service. Um, They're not going to have the freedoms they've enjoyed. Uh, And the king is going to, well, live like a king. And the people are going to support that lifestyle. And they're going to have to give a tenth of their produce and a tenth of their property and They're going to begin uh, giving up uh, all kinds of freedoms that they have enjoyed. And by the way, that was a tenth in addition to uh, the commitment that they were already expected to give to the Lord. So taxes are rising. (laughs) And uh, so by the time we come to 1 Samuel, the book opens with the story very quickly that the people have begun to fear the enemies that they never successfully drove out. And as a consequence of that, they begin to clamor uh, for a king. And so I, I want us to look this morning at these first two kings because they're very, very different uh, in how they led through their kingdom and how they ended up at the end of their life. Saul is the first one appointed by God. 
And the Bible tells us some interesting things about Saul. It says, for example, he was a head taller than his peers. A head taller. He stood out. You could see Saul in a crowd. Uh, He was the kind of man that was uh, very obvious. Uh, He was handsome. Um, He didn't have a lot of uh, fortitude himself. Uh, but God corrected that by providing the, the anointing of his own spirit. Not long after he was anointed as king, um, he came uh, among the prophets and Saul began to prophesy. And the scripture says from that moment forward, Saul was a changed man. God actually did a work in his life to make him a man of courage uh, and and a man of prophecy. Um, And yet, well, we'll get to it in a minute. Saul still had some significant problems. It wasn't long before he ran afoul of God. And ultimately, God came to the end of his patience with Saul, if you want to look at it that way. And he sent Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Now, you probably remember the story, how as God comes to Samuel uh, and says to him, I want you to go to, to Jesse and I want you to anoint some of one of his sons that I will show you. And I will give you a confirmation inside when you have the right man in front of you. I will give you a confirmation that this is the one I have chosen to replace Saul. And so he goes uh, to Jesse's household and he asks Jesse to bring out all of his sons. And they all line up and Samuel stands in front of each one of them. And Samuel has some ideas. He's thinking to himself, well, that one looks like a pretty good choice. Or this one over here, I think he would do a great job. I mean, he's, uh, he looks like the kind of guy that could be a leader. And as he stood in front of each one, God said to him, that's not my man. And so after a while, Samuel runs out of sons. And so he says to Jesse, isn't there anyone else? Uh, none of these are the ones that God has chosen. And Jesse says, well, there is the youngest, the little guy. He's out there with the sheep. And, uh, you know, I don't think he's kingly material. And besides, he's watching after the sheep out there. But And Samuel says, well, bring him to me. And so they go and send for David. And David comes. And God says, This is the man. Men look on the outside, but God sees the heart. And he says, this is the one I have chosen. Anoint him to be the king. Well, time goes along and David uh, begins to prove himself in some very... uh, interesting and powerful ways. You know the story of Goliath and some other things uh, that happened along the way. Uh, David, I don't, we don't really know how old he was. Um, most people assume he was a teenager. Uh, 
somewhere in those teen years, it's hard to say. But he was uh, <laughs> a guy of great courage. Uh, he talks about one time a bear came and took one of his sheep and a lion. And he went out with just his staff and a sling. And he dealt with them. And he barehandedly took on the bear and the lion and reclaimed his sheep and brought him back to the fold. Uh, As I was reading that passage of Scripture, um, it reminded me of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not want for anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Yes, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is with me. His rod and His staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David, as a man, a young man, took on a bear and a lion with a rod and a staff and got his sheep back. And that imagery is in his mind. This is how God cares for me. If I, a man, will go to these links to protect my sheep, how much more will God protect me? How much more will He defend me? How much more will He rescue me? The Lord is my shepherd. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? David, out of his own experience and, and the courage that God built into his own heart, is one who knows the Lord. And you know, my, my personal opinion is, because David was the, the sweet singer of Israel, he penned most of the Psalms, a great majority of them. And you read those uh, poems and those songs, some of them triumphant and victorious, some of them uh, frustrated and angry at his enemies, some of them having a heart-to-heart with God, some of them expressing despair and, and a sense of hopelessness, and yet looking out to God for deliverance. David Uh, bared his soul for us. He opened his heart that we could see him. And he was a man who from his boyhood and from those many days spent caring for the sheep, I think he was communing with God. He was talking. It wasn't anyone else to talk to, for one thing, lest the sheep talk back. But he was talking with God. He was building a relationship with God. He grew to love the Lord. His connection with God was rich and deep. And so David became a man after God's own heart. And this was long before 
he became the king of Israel. As Samuel anointed him, God looks upon the heart and he knows what's going on in the heart. When you look at the leadership qualities of these two guys, some things stand out to me. There are many, many things we could consider, but there's just a few that I want to pick out. Saul relies primarily on the word of Samuel as an intermediary between him and God. Every time you find Saul needing direction, you find him asking Samuel what God has to say. You don't find Saul going and talking to God directly. He's always trying to get input from Samuel. It makes me wonder if Saul really had any kind of a personal relationship with God. And then the irony of it is, after going to Samuel and getting guidance and getting direction, (laughs) he seldom follows it. Samuel comes back with a word from the Lord and Saul says, hmm, not sure if I like that. I think I'll modify this just a little bit. But oftentimes when David is needing direction from the Lord and guidance, he goes directly to God. He has a conversation with God. And this is important. He hears from God. As he goes and presents the question before God that's on his heart, uh, particularly regarding leading the armies of Israel in battle, Shall I go up against them? Will you give the enemy into my hand? Or should I wait? And God speaks to him and says, perhaps, yes, go up against them, for surely I will deliver them into your hand. And David has this intimacy with God that guides his leadership decisions. Oh, that we would have godly leaders that would seek the Lord. Oh, that we ourselves would seek the Lord and ask for His counsel and ask for His guidance. Because He alone, as He told Joshua, if you will uh, allow the words of these books to... uh, be in your heart and in your mind and in your mouth and meditate on them day and night, then I will make your way prosperous and I will give you good success. That does not mean that everything we do is going to turn out wonderfully well. But what it does mean is that God will provide guidance and direction for us. And as Jesus put it, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. And would that we would be a people that would seek the Lord directly, personally, to hear from Him. Lord, what do you want to do? And by the way, this is not part of my message, but it's a rabbit trail. I'm going to go down for a moment here. If a congregation is seeking the Lord, or a leadership team is seeking the Lord, or the elders are seeking the Lord, or any group is seeking the Lord, they're not going to hear six different things. 
my sister-in-law um, is skeptical in a lot of ways. She has a Christian background, but she watches these TV preachers, you know. And she says, if God's talking to all of them, it sure is confusing. <laughs> because they're coming out with all this different stuff. If we're seeking the Lord with the same heart and the same mind, and we don't have a personal agenda, God will be saying the same thing to us. We're, we're going to hear the same message. We're going to hear it in our own personality and reflection and perhaps a little different way, but the bottom line is going to be what God has to say. That's why Jesus said, whenever you're praying, if two or three of you agree uh, concerning any one thing, I will do that for you. He did not mean that we could get together in a little huddle and come up with a scheme that we're all in agreement on. He meant when you're praying and seeking me, if you hear the same thing, then you can count on, on me leading you. And I will do for you what you ask because you in the process of prayer have come to agreement. Okay, I'm coming back to the message. But David was that man who sought the Lord. He wanted to hear what God wanted him to do. Saul's history as a leader is characterized by disobedience followed by rationalization. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles for just a moment this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to read a bit here, but uh, th this is kind of an important chapter because it points out uh, the character of Saul's heart. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. In other words, the Amalekites opposed the Israelites as they were in the wilderness. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. I know some people and maybe some of you have difficulty with these kinds of commandments in the Old Testament, but God is preserving a people. And sometimes a group of people get to a point where there's literally no hope for them. Uh, there's, there's no way to, to redeem them, in a sense. And by that I mean to, to, to change them. They're set on a course, and the only way to solve the problem is to, to remove them. So Saul summons the people and numbers them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul comes to the city of Amalek and sets an ambush in the valley. And he says to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. 
and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. That tells you something about Samuel too, by the way. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Notice what Saul does here. He builds himself a monument. No humility in this man to speak of. So Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul greets him and says, Blessed of you are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, I, I love this scene. Can you just see it? What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And the lowing of oxen which I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Samuel says to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul says, speak. Samuel says, is it not true Though you were little in your own eyes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the soil and did what, the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on a mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I destroyed all the rest. But those people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Can't you just hear him whining? And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul says to Samuel, I sinned. 
I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. Notice in verse 30, I'm just going to skip down there for a moment. This is Saul speaking. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul not only disobeyed the word of the Lord, he blamed it on everybody else. And then when he repented, he did not want to be dishonored. He said that I can be honored before the people. He was concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about looking good, even though he had behaved badly. He wanted to look good. And he wanted Samuel to kind of dote on him a little bit and, and go up and offer some sacrifices with him and make this grand display of public repentance like, oh, here's this humble, wonderful guy, our king. Let's honor and respect him. Because Saul was not interested in God's favor, but man's favor. You know, there are two words in the New Testament for repentance. One of them means to have a change of heart and a change of direction and, and to turn about and go another way. In other words, to have done with your sin and, and to go the right direction. The other has to do with a sense of remorse that you got caught. A lot of people repent because they got caught. But you know good and well, if they had a chance and no one saw them, they would do the same thing again. Because there's nothing in their heart that really was grieved before God over their misbehavior. Saul, all he ever exhibited was that kind of repentance. He's the kid with his hand in the cookie jar. Has nothing to do with being sorrowful before God. It has to do with being found out. And that's all he's concerned about. Saul builds monuments to himself, wants to be exalted in the front of the people, and has no personal relationship with God. David, on the other hand, is characterized by obedience for the most part, and when necessary, he repents with deep sorrow before the Lord. Do you remember what he said in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba? He says, O oh God, against thee and thee alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
please now wash me with hyssop. Cleanse me. Restore your spirit to me. I don't want to be separated from you. Forgive me. David is broken. As soon as Nathan, you know the story, how Nathan comes and talks about the the one fellow that has this little lamb that slept in his bed with him and he carried him in his arms and a rich man with many, many sheep and goats and whatever has company and he goes and snatches the little lamb from the other man and slaughters it for the feast because he doesn't want to use any of his own. And David, oh, he gets so upset. He says, who is this man? Show me this man. He will be punished for what he's done. And Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are the man. Because he had taken Bathsheba from Uriah. And David suddenly has a broken heart. He's grieved. He sees it immediately. And Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. Totally different attitude. Totally different attitude. And if you go to 1 Kings chapter 15... An interesting thing is said regarding Jeroboam in retrospect. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. You see what that says about David? His heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. But for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and did everything God commanded him, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. You know, that was not the only mistake David made. He made some others. Among them, he numbered the Israelites, and that got him into some hot water. But from God's perspective, the only real problem that he remembered regarding David was the situation with Uriah. And he charges him with how he treated Uriah afterwards. And by the wording that's said here, My suspicion is that David and God had quite a lengthy conversation before he invited Bathsheba over. There was was a lot to be said, and David 
blew past all the warning signs. But from God's perspective, David was a man after his own heart who always followed and obeyed his commandments. And so, what does David do? Saul wants to build himself a monument. In fact, he does. But David wants to build a temple for God to honor him. David's thoughts are about the Lord. He wants to honor the Lord in the midst of Jerusalem. A lot of the applications I've made as we've gone along. But I just want to lift out a couple of things for us to take with us. Saul does what he thinks is best and has no personal relationship with God. How many of us do that? We do what's right in our eyes. We do what's logical. We do what makes sense. We do what everybody else is doing. And where does that take us? That's what Saul did. He followed the course of logic and human reasoning. And whenever he felt he was in a real jam, he had to go get help from somebody else that he felt was closer to God than he was. Whereas David, who was equally a mighty warrior, he was a military genius, he was a strategist, he knew how to fight a battle. But he always asked for God's counsel. Because there is not the general who has lived that does not understand that unexpected things can happen and things can go really wrong in a hurry. And David knew that only God could see the future. Shall I go up? Shall I fight? Do you want me to do this? He had that personal relationship with God and then he followed the counsel that God gave him I want to encourage you this morning to be among those who seek the Lord if your relationship with God is such that it's not a relationship and you don't hear the Lord then my encouragement to you is to start now and cultivate a relationship with God. To begin to spend time talking to Him. It may be days, it may be weeks, it may be months before you begin to hear His voice. The scripture says, be still, be quiet and know that I am God. It may take a while to build that habit into your life, to spend time in His Word, in His presence, to invite Him to teach you, to talk to you, to communicate. You have to learn to hear what His voice sounds like. But God is willing to lead you like a shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. And I call them by name. They know my voice. And they follow me, Jesus says. And if that's not true of you, I encourage you to uh, begin to seek the Lord. 
The scripture says, seek him while he may be found. And he put this message on my heart. And I believe that he's calling us to seek him. Because he wants to teach us. He wants to tell us things. He wants to guide us. He wants to do uh, great and mighty things among us. Not of our own imagination or of our own logic and astute human wisdom, but He wants to lead us by His Spirit. And if you don't know what that feels like or sounds like, just seek the Lord. What, what do I mean, seek the Lord? Open your Bible, sit in His presence. Ask Him to explain the Scriptures to you. Ask Him questions and, and wait to hear answers. And you may find, well, I didn't hear anything today. Okay, do it again tomorrow. Well, I didn't hear anything. Well, do it again the next day. Because my sheep hear my voice. And in due season, when you have cultivated that relationship with the Father... You will hear the voice of the Holy Spirit teaching you, guiding you, directing you. It may be a thought that comes through your mind. It may be a sense that you have in your spirit. You, you may hear a word from God. I, I don't necessarily mean audible, although I wouldn't rule that out. But I clearly recall how I knew to come to McHenry, Illinois. When I picked up the phone that afternoon, and John Fogel was on the line, the district superintendent, and he said, are you open to pastoring a church in the Midwest? And I said, I'm open to anything. And he said, well, there's a church in McHenry. And he got about that much out. And God said to me, as if I had another receiver in this ear, God said to me, and that's where I'm sending you next. Clear as a bell. I knew it was God, I knew it was His Word, and I knew it was a done deal. I had nothing to worry about. I didn't have to be concerned about how I came across with the board. I didn't have to worry about the impressions I made or didn't make. I didn't have to be concerned about making a mistake or not. God sent me here. That's where I'm sending you. God wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He wants to communicate with us. And David, as a man after God's own heart, heard the voice of the Lord all the days of his life. And out of that relationship, he led God's people, Israel, greatest king that ever sat upon the throne until King Jesus comes to take that throne. And who is he but the offspring of David? And he's coming again one day to take the throne. Do you want God to greatly use you? 
Do you want to see him accomplish powerful things? Listen for his voice and be obedient. I was reading a sermon on this very subject. I titled it A Tale of Two Kings, and then it occurred to me, I bet somebody else has come up with that title before, so I looked it up, and surely enough, there are several sermons titled A Tale of Two Kings. But I was reading one of them, and it was talking about changing directions, changing course, truly repenting, and quoted a Chinese proverb. I'd never heard it before, but I found it to be interesting. If you don't change your direction, you will get where you're going. If you don't change your direction, you will get where you're going. Are you pleased with where you're headed? Are you satisfied with your relationship with God? Do you like what you see? Well, that's where you're headed. Just more of the same. But if you're not, and you change direction, you can realize a different goal. Father, speak to our hearts. Speak to our hearts. Call us into your presence. Bring us to that place where in the quiet solitude we hear your voice. Teach us to grow so accustomed to how you sound that we can even hear you in the noise and cacophony of the city and the busyness of life. You are free to interrupt us. Lord, minister to us. But give us a hunger and thirst for you that will not be satisfied until we walk with you every day. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.